Jewish audio on Chabad.org. Rambam, Hilchus Bikurim, the laws of the first fruits, and the laws of the first fruits contain within it not only the laws of the first fruits, but also various other laws. And today we segue into the laws of Challah, the first portion of the dough. As I've shared previously, or as I've shared in the past, you've all, all of you have seen the sign in front of a construction site of a yeshiva or a synagogue, we're on the rise, we need your dough. That's the idea of challah. The challah is on the rise, and you have to set aside dough. Mitzvah say it is a positive commandment, lahapish to set aside Trumal, a heave offering, a gift offering, a portion, min ha'isa, from every dough, la kohen to the kohen. Now, today, <coughs> we kind of are spoiled because we get our bread in the bakery, <coughs> which uh, once upon a time the elite <coughs> did as well. But the average home, they would need the dough. process the dough and bake the bread. Being that this was an everyday occurrence, fresh bread baked daily, so the Torah instituted, we should remember the Kohen in the daily dough preparation. Shanemar, as it says, the beginning of your kneading uh, vessel, Chalo, Tarimu Lashem, the beginning of your dough, you shall lift up a portion of Chalo. Chalo Tarimu Truma, you should give a gift. Now, that is the obligation of the mitzvah called Chalo. And spiritually, we're told that there are many blessings that come into the home when the woman of the home actually separates the Chalo. Some people have a custom, even though the bakery challahs are very good, they go out of their way and they bake their own challah just to be able to perform this mitzvah. Spiritually, we're told that this is a tikkun. This is an act of rectification to fix the damage done by the first woman, by Eve, by Adam and Eve, Chavo, who ruined God's dough, so to speak, God's plan, by telling her husband to eat of the tree of knowledge, and it's been downhill ever since. So this is her opportunity to fix the world. And she's been fixing ever since. <coughs> How much of the first dough do we have to give? The answer is whatever. There's no specific amount by Torah law. Even if somebody gave as much as a barley, a barley corn, that's sufficient. Potter Saisa, he exempts the rest of the dough. However, if somebody takes the whole dough and says, ah, I'll make the whole thing challah, I'll give the whole thing to the Kohen, that has no value. He has to leave some similar to what we learned earlier in the law of Truma. Unlike what we learned earlier in the laws of the first fruits, 
where we said in the case of the first fruits, you want to make the whole tree your first fruits, knock yourself out. But here, you have to leave some. That is, by biblical law, you can give anything you want, whatever you're motivated to give. But from rabbinic law, the rabbis attached a percentage of what one should give, and that is one twenty-fourth of the dough. In order that the Kohen should have something meaningful, because otherwise, less than that, he's getting a little dot. Shenemar, as it says, Titan lo, you shall give to him. Den give him something that has significance. So that is retail. That's the person at home, the homemaker, the housewife. but the baker, who's a businessman, a guy who's in a bakery making a living. If he had to give one twenty-fourth, it's a lot. Second of all, he makes big doughs, so the Kohen could get anyway from a smaller ratio. He can get away with 148th, which is half the amount of 124th. Because he has a big dough, there's enough to comfortably give the Kohen. And therefore... Being that we said that the individual has to separate 124th and the baker 148th. What if somebody is doing a self-catered wedding for his own son? He's not a baker, he's an individual, but he happens to be making a big party. Does he do 124th or does he do 148th? I'm glad you asked. Even though it's a lot... We still want him to give 124th. But he's making a wedding for 600 people. That's a lot. Why do we make him give that which a housewife gives? The answer is... Once we start differentiating with homemade doughs, there's no end. It's homemade. You're not a baker. Give 124th. On the other hand, the truth goes the other way as well. What if a baker, who happened to make a little dough? He still has the bakery ratio of 148. Not to differentiate. This is the dough of a baker. He sticks with the same proportion. Now what happens? This is a holy food. What if the dough becomes impure? And nowadays we don't really observe the laws of ritual purity and impurity because everybody's impure today. We have no Besamigdash. But back then when people had to maintain ritual purity, so if the dough becomes impure, beshegig inadvertently, or accidentally, even the homemaker, even the housewife should give the minimum amount. Because you can't do very much with that chala of impurity. However, if somebody intentionally defiled the dough, because he figures he can give less. See, somebody figured he didn't need to maintain ritual purity. He's not going to the Beis Hamikdash tomorrow. So he's got nothing to lose, and he'll save money. 
by having to give a smaller portion when it becomes defiled. That's intentional. Then we make him give the bigger portion anyway. Why? And here's an interesting principle. Our sages didn't want the sinner to gain. You don't gain by intentionally defiling things. If you can get a smaller obligation by intentionally doing bad stuff, everyone's going to want to do bad stuff. What happens to Chala from a defiled, ritually impure dough? The answer is, it is treated like defiled, ritually impure truma, which we learned in great detail earlier. What does the Kohen do with his impure truma, which he can't eat? The answer is, no problem. He uses it for fuel. Because there's a tremendous fuel need. There's an opinion in the commentaries that that was before the DWP. Before Con Edison. So the Kohen had to have heating. So the Kohen uses this to create a fire to give heating. To give uh, cooking uh, fuel and so on. Hey, ein chayovim bechalam in from a biblical perspective, this is a, an obligation which is only observed in Israel. As it says, as the verse says, it shall come to pass when you will eat from the bread of the land. Talks about the land. The land is Israel. Whenever it says the land in the Torah, it does not mean Kentucky. Not even Utah. <laughs> and when all of Israel is there, when you all will arrive, it means the entire Jewish people is there, not some of you. Therefore, nowadays, you don't have the experience of the entire Jewish people being in Israel. When I say nowadays, I mean during the time of the Rambam. Even in the days of the beginning of the Second Commonwealth, when Ezra brought about the great return in preparation for the rebuilding of the Second Beis Hamikdash, even then it was not the entire Jewish people. The Second Commonwealth, the Aliyah of Ezra, was a numbers-wise very poor Aliyah, economically poor as well. As we learned in the Truma law that. The obligation is rabbinic. What if produce from the diaspora enters into Israel? Then it would be required to have challah. But produce from Israel that went out to the diaspora are exempt. I am delivering you there. Shema Sha'ata Chayovin Bainal Pedasaurus Bainal there in Israel you are obligated whether the produce had its origins in Israel or in the diaspora. This of course would be a rabbinic obligation if it had its obligation, if it has its origins in the diaspora. We also separate or set aside chala outside of Israel as an outgrowth of a, of a rabbinic law. And that's why to this very day we have the practice of challah. Except that to this very day as anybody who's ever baked 
knows the Torah law. We take a little piece of dough and we make the bracha and we burn it. Because today we cannot give it to the Kohen because the Kohen doesn't have the ritual purity status to eat it. Why do we do it? What's the purpose? In order that the teachings of this beautiful mitzvah of the first part of the dough should not be forgotten. Because if Jews are just going to stop giving challah, what's going to happen when Mashiach is going to come? People are going to say, what's challah? By the way, as I pointed out already, that the reason our Sabbath bread is called challah today is from this mitzvah. Otherwise, it would be called Sabbath bread. We never bring the challah from the diaspora into Israel. Just as we don't bring the truma or the first fruits from the diaspora into Israel. What if he did? It's a problem. Why? We learned earlier that our sages established an across-the-board state of ritual impurity for everything that comes from outside of Israel. And therefore, you can't bring it into Israel because you're creating problems. What if you do? Then you shouldn't even burn it because you shouldn't have done it to begin with. And maybe it isn't, maybe it isn't. It's complicated. You just let it sit and when Pesach comes, it's chametz. It has to be burned with all the other chametz. But you don't even want to go intentionally and burn it because it's forbidden to burn challah unnecessarily. Nor can it be returned to the diaspora, as he says here, lest people think you're allowed to take challah out of Israel. So it's just not a good thing to do. And here the Rambam spells it out. This mirrors the laws we learned earlier with Truma. That in three geographical areas, there are three different laws. The land of Israel, which was conquered by the Babylonian Aliyah, that's Ezra's Aliyah, up to the geographical point known as the city of Ksiv. That's Territory that is conquered by, by Ezra, established as Israel proper in the Second Commonwealth. Therefore, that may be eaten by a Kohen. But the rest of Israel, which was conquered by Joshua in Moses' time, but not reconquered by Ezra, which is from the geographical point of Gziv up to Amona, there's a problem. Because, as we learned earlier, the original conquering process by Joshua did not hold over. And whatever was not reconquered in Ezra's time, it has a secondary sanctity for the purposes of Truma and Chala. So, we take two rounds of Chala. The first round, Yisrefes, is burned, just in case the obligation is there. And the other, which is just a rabbinic experience, is eaten. He spells it out. Why? Because the first challah, the first taking, 
becomes ritually impure. Why? Because it's not in Ezra's Israel. Because it was not sanctified again in the times of Ezra. And as we talked about extensively earlier, and the original sanctity has dissipated once the Jewish people were exiled. We're not talking about ownership of Israel. We're talking about sanctity of Israel. But still being that it's Joshua's Israel, we should take 148th, <coughs> the minimum amount, so we should burn it. And then, just for posterity's sake, we take a second section of chalav, and we give it to the local Kohen to consume, but that's just an experience. In order that people not say, this was a truma from the chala. It was pure. Why is it being burned? Because the first one is burned. Even though we don't see it visibly defiled. Why is it being burned? Because this part of Israel was not re-sanctified by Ezra. The second which is just an experience, has no set amount, whatever he wants, because it's a rabbinic ordinance. And then there is the territory outside of even Amona, going into Syria and the other lands around Israel. We also do that. We take two portions. One to be burned in order that people never say, we saw impure truma being consumed, so therefore we burn it, so everybody should see that it's being burned. And then there's a second one we take just for the educational experience, to be eaten. In order that the idea of challah not be forgotten by the Jewish people, being that they're both rabbinic. The rabbinic, the first one is also a rabbinic mitzvah, because it's a different geography. is better to eat more. The therefore shall the one that's going to be burned, and that's the observance we do today. We take a piece of challah, kol shehu, a little piece. the one that's going to be eaten, echad one forty-eighth. Why should we waste food by burning a lot? Now, being that this is just an experience, umoteras lezobim, lezobis, this would be permissible for people who have bodily discharges would, which would make them impure. They ain't certainly other forms of impurity because it's only a rabbinic ordinance to remember the chala experience so people not forget. I've shared this in the past, but I'll share it again reminiscent of the principle of this law, I had a very interesting experience when I was a child. When I was a kid, like other precocious kids, uh, I used to want to do everything the adults do. And so it came Rosh Hashanah, I learned to blow the shofar, and when I was nine or ten years old, I was already a proficient shofar blower. The problem is you're not allowed to blow the shofar in a synagogue until you're over bar mitzvah. My father, a blessed memory, blew the shofar. One year, my father had a very difficult time blowing the shofar. It just it didn't, it didn't go. So the sounds that came forth from his shofar blowing were barely sounds. 
It was horrible. However, by Torah law, any sound from a chauffeur is kosher. Even a horrible one. Doesn't matter. Even if you're, that's, that's a sound. But my father was concerned that people would walk away from shul. Yes, they fulfilled the mitzvah of shofar, but they didn't feel like they heard the shofar. So he called me over. He says, come here. He says, he explained, he says, I'm asking my son who's not bar mitzvah yet to sound the shofar, not because we haven't fulfilled our obligation we have, but because I want everybody to have a shofar experience. And I got up and I, I mean, whoa, did I sound the shofar. I mean, it was one of the most glorious moments of my life. But it had zero value halachically because I wasn't bar mitzvah. But it gave the experience. And this is what he's talking about here, the challah. There's the halachic challah, and there's the experience challah. Like the fellow who walks over to a uh, very wealthy man, he says, listen, I want to create a business. I have, uh, you have the money, and I have the experience. He says, and we did that. And now he has the money and I had the experience. Tes bizman hazeh, nowadays, she'ein shom isot tehedim v'netumas hameis. Nowadays, everyone is considered defiled because we don't have the red heifer ritual. So everybody who's ever been to a funeral, who hasn't? Who hasn't been in a hospital where there was a corpse? I mean, everybody's considered impure. The way you become ritually pure when Mashiach comes. We'll have again the ritual of the Poradum, of the red heifer. Now everybody's considered impure, even in the Rambams now, 850 years ago. We take one section of Chala, one taking throughout Israel, 148th, which is the smaller ratio, so we burn it, because it's impure. It's not really chala biblically. But from gziv to amona, the outer bounds. There we take a second. Doesn't have an amount. As it once did. What about diaspora chala? Which is what we have nowadays in the diaspora. Even though it's impure, being that it's primarily rabbinic, it's only forbidden Torah by Torah law to be eaten by a Kohen who has bodily discharge. Anybody who had a discharge of sorts, seminal discharge, a menstrual discharge, healthy or unhealthy, a woman who gives birth, biblical leprosy, but anybody else who's defiled in any other way, I feel it may amaze, even defiled by death, technically, would be permitted to eat this challah. So again, you ask a question, so why don't we have koanim eat the challah these days? My understanding, I believe, is because we're not sure who is really, really, really a koan. Unless we... Uh, to a whole trace of their uh, genealogical uh, lineage. So I believe that's the reason why we burn the challah and don't even symbolically give it to a Kohen. But going back to the Rambam's law, if there was a minor Kohen in the diaspora who was not yet physically mature, so there isn't even a problem of seminal emission, 
Bein b'Syria, bein b'Shara Rotzis, whether in Syria or other lands, but also the Hapish Chalachas, and he wants to set aside one Chala. Mafrish Nechad Ma'abayim Mishmeina, you can set aside the smaller ratio, which is one forty-eighth. But Nechelas Lekotni can be eaten by a Kohen who's a minor, Shadayin Lo Yiroa Keri, who's not mature enough to have emissions, a Lekatana or a minor young lady, Shadayin Lo Yiroa Sanida, who is not. Mature enough to have menstrual cycle, we don't have to do it a second time. So also, if there was the high priest who immersed in the mikvah because he had a seminal emission or he had a abnormal emission situation, even though the sun did not yet set as is required for truma. Even though, like all others, he, uh, although he may be expo- have been exposed to death, he may eat the first challah, and the second does not have to be taken because this is more of a symbolic experience. It may be eaten by Kohanim with certain levels of impurity. Now, is there a bracha when you do challah? The answer is absolutely. Anyone who sets aside challah makes a bracha first. Hashem and Shonav and Sveisu are sanctified us with his commandments. And commanded us to set aside challah. Some say min from the dough. There are other versions. Whether in Israel whether outside of Israel, or just as you make a bracha for the pure dough, for the undefiled dough, so also you make for the defiled dough, therefore, as we learned earlier, whenever we make a bracha, we require modest attire. When we don't make a bracha, we don't even require the modest attire. And again, today, it's very easy to have modest attire. You put on a bathrobe, you put on clothes, People have, thank God today, by and large, plenty of clothes. Even the people who don't have a lot of clothes have a lot of clothes. But there was a time that people didn't have clothes. And when their clothes were being washed in the lake and in the river, they, they covered themselves with whatever they had. So it was a real challenge. So therefore... When you make a bracha, a person who is not modestly attired, or as he says here, a person in the nude, may still set aside the challah. Although it's a mitzvah, there's no bracha. But if he's making a bracha, he's not allowed to. Sheini yochel because he's not allowed to make a bracha. Avo, and here's an interesting law. Ha'isha aruma, a woman who is not in a state of modest attire. Sheyoshva, being that the biology of a man is different than a woman. The biology of a man is that his male organ protrudes. In the case of a female, when she's sitting, there's nothing exposed. All of her private area is covered by the ground. Therefore, theoretically, she can even make a bracha in that condition because she's not immodest in her sitting position. Yud Gimel Hanida, what about a, a woman in a state of menstruation? And may set aside the challah of the diaspora, 
because the command is not about touching the challah, even when this ritual command is observed, it's about eating it. But if there was a minor kayan, a kayan shetabal or a kayan who had immersed, shimuteres leilachila, who can eat it, and he made it with the Israelite on one table, because even if it's mixed with non-chala, though it doesn't become dimua, mixed, you can also give it to an unlearned kohen, which we said earlier is problematic, in the case of truma and so on, because it is diaspora chala, all diaspora foods are automatically considered impure. It doesn't mean that you're helping the Kohen transgress, which would be a prohibition. If he wants to first eat it, and then set aside the challah, that's fine too. Because in this setting, it's only a rabbinic command. The Torah refers to challah by the name truma. Like truma, we should have the produce in front of us. Unlike other gifts, where you can set aside produce from here for there. And specifically like meiser. May not be taken from the pure for the impure to begin with. Now the rule is all, raw, all laws which apply to truma apply to chala. So if we said by truma you should not set aside and if he did it's not truma same applies to chala. And any situation where we said with regard to truma he should not set aside from this for the other. The same law applies to Chala. Anybody who cannot eat Truma, cannot eat Anybody who may eat Truma, the extended family of the Kohen, etc., etc. Now he says, we learned earlier that in the case of Chala, I'm sorry. We learned earlier that in the case of Truma, people who don't know how to focus to take the best part should not take Truma. So we learned earlier that if somebody's blind, he shouldn't be the one to set aside Truma. If somebody's intoxicated, shouldn't be the one to set aside Truma. However, here, there's no better and worse. It's just the first. And therefore, in the closing paragraph of this chapter, Hasuma, someone who's blind, Vashikon, someone who's intoxicated, Mafrish and Chala lechatchila, although we learned earlier they cannot set aside Truma, but here they may set aside Chala, Shein Isa Rabbi Yafa, because in a dough there's no better and worse. A dough is a dough. Do Remi, Kidei Sheyechavnu V'yifrishu Minayafa, in order that they should focus and take up the best, that's not possible to say when it comes to a dough. Therefore, even the blind and even the intoxicated may set aside challah. End of chapter 5.